This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lamigo. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Doug Mosscrop, Eslam Hethnawi, and Ben Miner about Serverless Cloud. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 117. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And you're listening to Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Jeremy. How are you doing today? I am super excited today because on the show, I have some of, the, some of my favorite people right now from the serverless industry because I work with them. Well, I've heard that you have actually two of your favorite people, but we have three guests. So I'll just let them decide which of those two it is. There you are, causing trouble, dissension in the team. Um, So uh, with us today, um, no, these are seriously some of my favorite people uh, in the serverless uh, industry, some old, some new, um, but people that are making, I think, a ton of progress. um, And uh, I am super happy to be working with these people. Uh, I've got a few members of the serverless cloud team from Serverless Inc., Um, We recently launched Serverless Cloud into public preview, uh, and I think we're all super excited about it. Um, But I got some really cool voices. Um, Would you like me to introduce them, Rebecca? Oh my gosh, please do. And when you introduced them to me, told me about them, I was super excited to be able to be on the show with you all. Awesome. All right. Go for it. Floor is yours. Floor is mine. All right. So first up, we have Eslam Hefnawi. Hey, Eslam. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Rebecca. Hey. We We have Ben Miner. Hey, Ben. Hello. How you doing? And last but certainly not least, Doug Mosscrop. Hey, Doug, how you doing? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Well, I am excited um, that you are all here. So I am, full disclosure, I am the GM of Serverless Cloud. So these people are all the amazing people that work on my team, or I should say some of the amazing people that work on my team. Um, but I don't want this episode to be about me. I want it to be about them because they all bring a really unique perspective to the serverless community. Um, and they all bring a really unique perspective, I think, uh, and, a, and a lot of really great uh, traits and, and skills to what we built at um, at Serverless uh, at Serverless. Excuse me, at Serverless Cloud. So, Rebecca, I don't know. Do you want to maybe start and, and and ask them some questions and see if we can figure out, you know, what Serverless Cloud is? Yeah. Well, first, I actually really want to know. I know that each of you sort of bring a really special role or kind of a superpower, as Jeremy has told me, to the team. So, I'd love to start with you, Eslem, and sort of get a quick overview of like what it is that you do on the team, and then let's roll into talking about Serverless Cloud. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, Serverless Cloud. Uh, we all do like a bit of everything, honestly, <laughs> you know, but now that the team has grown, there are some roles, we try to fill each other's roles, but uh, for the most part, I focus on developer experience. So I take care of the CLI and a little bit of the, the API. Uh, but uh, yeah, other than that, I can dig a little bit here and there in the back end as well. Uh, but that's my, my main focus, serverless cloud right now. And developer experience, by the way, is one of the most important things yeah. that you know that we're striving for here. Yeah, that's right. What about you, Ben? Uh, <laughs> I think I'm still kind of wandering to find my uh, <laughs> true niche in the, on the cloud team. But so far, uh, I've definitely spent a lot of time just modernizing the code base and cleaning it up, uh, especially migration to TypeScript, migrating to Jest, you know, a lot of stuff like that. Using ES Build to just make deployments faster and uh, the bundle size smaller. So I'm still kind of trying to find 
where I'm going to sit, but it'll come. Well, uh, well, I was just going to say that Ben is is definitely uh, you know uh, has has pushed the team to to move to TypeScript. I mean, one of the things that we did was, you know, this was a POC originally, right? You know, just this was something that we were trying to figure out. You know, can we do these things? Can we can we create these isolated environments and move them through, um, you know, it, through this developer experience and through these workflows uh, and and make that fast and reliable? Um, and so again, a lot of uh, a lot of MVP work that was done. And now that we've gotten to this point of a public preview, uh, Ben has actually been very very instrumental um, in helping us, like he said, modernize that code base, get a lot of those tests in there, uh, get a lot of that automation set up for us and and help us with uh, you know with the TypeScript migration. So don't undersell yourself, Ben. You've been a very very valuable member of this team. I was going to say, Ben being all humble, but Doug, last but not least, Jeremy actually used the word journeyman about you. So if you could elaborate a little bit on that as you intro yourself too. Yeah, um, absolutely. My, um, you know, my background is I've always loved programming since I was young and I tend to be a little bit scatterbrained and sort of uh, every man, like just, you know, there's nothing that can't, I can't get excited over. So my superpower, I think, is I just sort of bring this really big picture, pushing the boundaries of what's possible, um, you know, just the crazy idea guy. Plus, you know, I, I, I tend to be invested or, in, you know, involved heavily in like runtime type things. So sort of the inner workings, the gory details. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's my superpower is just sort of never, uh, never being satisfied and, and always having a new idea. Yeah. And, and, uh, and let me add to that, Doug, because one of the things that you did, um, that was huge, I mean, talk about pushing the boundaries, um, is the ability to sync code from your local IDE to the cloud and actually have that in production or available via your cloud, um, your personal developer instance, as we call them, um, but have that available um, in less than a second. I mean, that is something that AWS can't do, right? Because AWS has to do all this whole deployment thing and, and these other things. And within this constrained environment that we've created, um, we're able to do that very, very, very quickly. And that is something that that I know you've been working on for a long time and pushing and pushing. So those are the types of things that it's great because we just know the pains and, and we're like, hey, what can we do to make that better? So pretty excited to get into these gory details, as you called it. Uh, can we talk a little bit about what is the launch of serverless cloud? And then let's get into the gory details. Yeah, so who wants to start? So maybe, Doug, you want to give an overview of what, uh, what cloud is? Sure, yeah, okay. Um, so serverless cloud for me is is was born out of a lot of my experience bringing serverless to a place where I was working um, and just, you know, I, I don't think I was as early to the game as Eslam was, but I was pretty, pretty early on the train in serverless. And so feeling a lot of those pain points, um, you know, especially around, you know, the local versus got cloud, uh, you know, impedance problem and just the the speed of deployments and, and all that stuff. And even beyond that, it was just a general sense of like, I, I got sick of having to write so much code and I had a feeling that I was duplicating myself a lot. Like I would write all my code and then I would write all my you know, configuration or my YAML. And I felt like there was a lot of times where they were really just mirroring each other or it felt like one should be able to be sort of inferred from the other. And it was actually the product of you know many, many years of feeling this and trying to iterate on it and try to move the needle where I started coming up with this sort of this notion of infrastructure from code rather than infrastructure as code. And that's sort of my pet term that I've been holding on to and trying to uh, proselytize. But um, yeah, it, it really was born out of like a, just a, you know, something I always ask is, you know, can this be better? Can I, can I write less code? It's not about not writing any code. It's about writing as little code as is necessary to communicate what you're trying to do and avoid any kind of quirks that come up when you're forced to repeat things and then one of them changes and then the other one doesn't change to to match it. So for me, serverless cloud is sort of like a 
trying to find that perfect sweet spot in this sort of low code, no code movement that's happening, um, but without taking any power away, just finding those common patterns that you're going to inevitably write anyway, the boilerplate, the undifferentiated heavy lifting, as it's been called, and just making that one less thing to worry about, which is really what I think the serverless movement is. Uh, it's it's not about no servers as everyone likes to rib. It's it's really about less to worry about, less things for you to manage, less things for you to provision. So serverless cloud is just to me that next iteration. You know, and I think it's revolutionary. Calling an iteration is probably a bit of an understatement, but it, it's it's about finding the next set of things that you don't have to worry about. You know, and and some of that comes in the form of our abstractions, where we're just letting you express what you're trying to do cleanly and succinctly. And in other cases, it's about the infrastructure and runtime, where the less stuff you have to be specific about, the more things we can tune or optimize under the hood in order to give your you the best developer experience as well as your application the best operational you know behaviors. Yeah, and I'm actually I'm curious to follow up on that with with you, Eslam, because you've been working on the serverless framework, uh, the open source project that I mean has been around now what for five years or something like that. Um, you've been working on that for quite some time, and I'm I'm curious. You know, Doug sort of mentions. And you didn't maybe use this exact term, but this sort of impedance mismatch of uh, when you're trying to build, uh, when you're trying yeah. to build a serverless application, there's been this promise of just write code. And then it all turned into configuration. So now it's like just write code and a whole bunch of configuration. Yeah. Um, and and that's sort of the path that um, that the serverless framework took. That's the path that obviously CloudFormation has and a lot of these other ones, even things like AWS SDK, um, still, uh, not sorry, AWS CDK, still requiring you to write a lot of of code in order to tell it how to configure the service. So I'm curious from your perspective where you started with the serverless framework um, and what was available there and what were the challenges there and then moving on to something called serverless components, which I'm not sure everyone's familiar with, but was a way that you were trying to do in a similar way what we're doing with cloud to kind of encapsulate these use cases and then maybe where that's gone with cloud. So just from your perspective, that that developer requirements, how have you seen that sort of grow what the developer has to do and and, and your mm -hmm. perspective on, on maybe reducing that? Yeah, so the, the framework, like it started a long time ago, of course, like this was uh, 2015, I think. At the time, serverless was really immature. You know, Lambda just got, got out. You know, there was, I don't even remember, there were Dynamo back then, probably. Uh, but uh, there were very few services that are truly serverless. And the framework came to sort of help all of these together, tie them together. So at the time, there wasn't a lot of configuration. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was great, actually. Right. And uh, there were, were like less dependency on CloudFormation also. So you just have to worry about the Lambda functions, API gateway, and maybe like an S3 bucket and a uh, table and whatnot. So it was really simple. And even the Lambda configuration itself wasn't, wasn't that much. You know, like it's, uh, it wasn't like they didn't support everything. They didn't support all languages and all the runtimes they have now, but uh, it was a lot simpler at the time. And no one really worried about the configuration, but, uh, fast forward a few years, uh, you see how AML files look like now, right? It's, uh, like it's still a lot less than CloudFormation, and it still helps you a lot when you're working with a lot of lambdas. But uh, at the end of the day, you're still going to have to know CloudFormation to build anything. Even a little bit of CloudFormation will be required, uh, at least for the tables, for uh, the buckets, and plus all the permission stuff. So... Uh, like getting started with serverless with the framework uh, was easy, but uh, building that and taking that to production required um, 
knowledge of AWS, like real knowledge. The framework abstracts a lot of stuff for you, but at the end of the day, you're working with AWS, your own account, and uh, and uh, the framework just lays the framework for you, you know, like <laughs> lays the road ahead just to uh, figure out how to do this. But uh, you still need to, needed to learn a lot about serverless and uh, to put things together. Uh, so what we noticed after like, after a while is that uh, people were just trying to build use cases and they didn't really care about what kind of infrastructure uh, they're using. Uh, a lot of them were just using examples. We had a lot of examples uh, for the framework. Uh, so someone wanted like a, a user service, you know, like they didn't care that much that it must use DynamoDB, but you know that this is a serverless solution for it. So they just tried to figure out how to use it and put together the right resources and the YAML file. And you want to, to have like an image resizer, they need an S3 bucket or whatnot. So this made us realize that people want use cases. And this is where we started to evolve because this is how I think about components and then cloud, just like uh, we're evolving to the, ne the next uh, like abstraction basically. So with uh, components, it just offers a way for you uh, to abstract use cases rather than worry about infrastructure. So when we came up with components, one of the most uh, popular uh, use cases is a website. So it lets you right. deploy an entire website on AWS, your own account still. So you still have to figure out at least the permission, you know, at least the, uh, the credentials, you need to create an AWS account or whatnot, but you don't have to worry about the resources as much. So the config shrinks, it really shrinks. So you just had to provide a couple of uh, inputs, you put it in the uh, component input and then everything gets deployed for you. And uh, for this particular use cases, it was great and uh, it worked really well. It got a little bit harder when you try to do something a little different for edge cases, for example, uh, because you can only do what you can configure. But other than that, you're going to have to create your own component. I'm not going to get into how to do that right now, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, we've moved, we moved past components. I mean, I know that's components are still yeah. out there, yeah. but I mean, I think, that's, I, I think that's right. I think the point you made about components was you try to encapsulate a use case mm. and make it super easy, which is sort of what, you know, CDK constructs are yeah. doing, or um, I forget what they're called in, in Pulumi, but um, they have a similar uh, construct type thing where you can kind of encapsulate a bunch of functionality and yeah. sort of, you know, bake that all in and make it easy for you just to put a few inputs in but i think as we transfer to cloud i think I, at least for me my my biggest you know sort of complaint about components was a little bit of a lack of control where you couldn't do some of that extra yeah. configuration so from a cloud perspective i'll let you explain this but you know what what was that evolution now where it's like this balance right between control as well as ease of use yeah so uh with clouds, like, okay, let's start with ease of use because uh, one of the biggest issues we had with components is that now we have very simple use cases, but uh, people still needed their own account, their own AWS account, and uh, they needed to figure out the credentials and whatnot. So cloud helped that a lot because now you don't need to worry about AWS at all. You don't need to like <laughs> worry about credentials, sign up and all of that. Uh, with cloud, you could just start the CLI, log into the into serverless, and that's it. You're, you're good to go. You'll be able to deploy your own application right away. So it's super, super easy. And we have taken a lot of what we've done with components and uh, put it into cloud, but even better and faster because uh, we control the environment and we can make better uh, uh, use cases. So it, um, it became a lot simpler for you uh, to run an application. And uh, we offered more use cases uh, that 
gives you more control on how you can configure it through the runtime. So at the time we were more, we didn't really have a runtime back in uh, with components. So it was just a set of components basically, but uh, uh, the runtime gives you a lot of things out of the box without having to deploy them. So you have the capture, you have data, so with data you have the, the parameters and the testing, all, all, all of these things we didn't have in components and uh, things that users definitely needed. Uh, so in that sense, like you could do a lot, a lot more than you could have done with components and uh, it made things easier, like a lot easier, I think. If I gonna just add that, like as a as you know an early adopter of the framework, you know the plugins were the really attractive thing to me, and I you know I always mm -hmm. explain it to my colleagues, and we did a lot of workshops at my previous job on the serverless framework, and I was always like you know it's it's ultimately a cloud formation generator, but the ability to write plugins gives you this programmatic power that you just can't get from you know raw declarative templating, right? And of course things like CDK have come along, but even in all that space, it feels very sort of outside in, and one of the main motivators for cloud for me was was more of an inside out like i i always felt that a lot of the elements of a, of a even just a language the runtime itself whether it's node or in this case it's it's heavily heavily node based right now uh, but it felt like a lot of the things you would want to do you could actually express just as like vanilla language constructs or vanilla runtime constructs and we ought to be able to infer the infrastructure from them so it, it felt like it was really kind of flipping the perspective of how you're looking at what's necessary or how you're creating your applications and that's what i think is one of the things that differentiates cloud from other sort of you know programmatic automation deployment platforms yeah i'm curious Evelyn, you talked a little bit about like when serverless was really nascent and young, right? It was actually really simple because there wasn't a lot to configure because it was really just a few truly serverless services. Yeah. And then with some insider intel that I think I know, Ben, you actually entered the serverless space when there were probably like way more tools. It was actually way more overloaded. There were way more choices. And so I'm curious, Ben, if you can talk a little bit about, it's like Eslam went from simple to overloaded and complicated to making it simpler. But you entered, Ben, I think basically when it was, well, overloaded is not necessarily the right term. It was much more complex in terms of the amount of choices that there were. So what that experience has been for you starting out where it was actually, you entered into it when there were so many choices and now you're watching it simplify through this serverless cloud launch and moving in that direction. Yeah, totally. I, uh, at the end of my college career, I had the great opportunity to uh, intern at this uh, kind of this Nashville startup called uh, Lumpa and they they specialize in music technology and the uh, CTO there who I was kind of working under was very much like uh, very about the next big thing and using the latest and greatest. And so when I joined the like full stack web team, he was all serverless. He was kind of showing me serverless. It was it was he had just discovered it and he was like, I, I've wanted I wanted a way because they were running .NET servers on like I think it was like, uh, I can't remember the hosting service. It wasn't AWS. It was like huge .NET monoliths. And he's like, there has got to be a better way. And they're trying to save, you know, these are multi-tenant applications for multiple, multiple festivals at the same time, but running the same code. So they needed a way to containerize and scale, uh, you know, automatically. And because that was a big thing was scale because these festivals would have 10 to 20 to 50,000 people getting onto the app at the same time on a weekend. And uh, scale became a big issue because they were like, well, now we have to have some, but we have to have a DevOps guy or girl, you know, like watching 
the what when the festival starts and scaling up our servers so we adopted the serverless thing and kind of became obsessed with it to be frank uh we started building everything in it uh, which you know kind of came to a fault we weren't maintaining the same pattern so every new product was like slightly different but by the time i entered the space it was definitely a mature framework there was tons of plugins we actually it was kind of funny i was telling doug when i first joined we had to use his split stacks plugin because our we maxed our cloud formation stacks and i was like i know this name and oh that's why i know this name because i had to <laughs> and he just replied i'm sorry you had to use that but um yeah so it, it was it was it was a really cool uh, way to jump into aws and and just like distributed computing, I had, I, you know, I was fresh out of college. I had no idea what I was doing. So I thought this was like the standard kind of thing. Cause it was my first time. It was my first job. So I thought this was what everyone was doing. And then I went to my second job and realized, no, we were way ahead. And I, and I was kind of just confused, um, a little bit why no, not everyone is doing it this way. And it makes sense. You know, some people have they're, you know, they have their teams used to what they're doing and cloud formation is a huge learning curve, um, even with a framework as good as serverless. So it's like a lot of people are scared to jump in, but once you do, um, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, I think it's Corey Quinn who says uh, legacy app is just another term for um, apps that make money. Um, and that's part of the problem is that you have so much uh, legacy infrastructure because you know we are ahead. I mean, I think serverless, and even though it's been around for five, six years now, um, you know the tooling is just starting to mature. Um, we're just starting to find these things where it's easier for people to build. Um, you know, we talk to customers all the time at Serverless Inc. And you know, one of our recent customers basically said, "We love the idea of cloud because we have a small team." We need to move fast. We've got a lot of big ideas, but we don't have the time to learn the nuances of API Gateway and Lambda and Fargate and DynamoDB and the permissions model and all these other things and cross accounts and all the best practices. And that's not to say that these things are not valuable to learn because I think they really are. Um, but I'm curious, just to go back to you, Ben, when you encountered this serverless paradigm and cloud, I mean, just cloud in general, forget about serverless, just cloud in general, I mean, did you feel like you were kind of hit with this wall of like, there is just so much to learn that they oh, didn't teach me in college? Um, oh, yeah. You know, because I think that to me, when I first encountered this, it, cloud was, I started working on cloud in 2009. So for me, it was like a slow evolution and I learned as new things came out. I can't imagine hitting this wall right now and and just feeling overwhelmed. I don't know if you if you had that experience. Definitely. There was a, you know, it's always a tip of the iceberg. You would figure out one service or like how this one thing works. And then you need to use one of their other services, like insert Amazon name here. And it was like, oh, I have to go learn this. And how do I do this with the framework? That was a big thing too. Like we would have this new service. We tried out AppSync for one product. Um, didn't have a good experience, but the whole thing was like, how do we get this to use? How do we deploy this with serverless, you know? Um, and it was kind of strange. I found how valuable AWS knowledge is pretty early on because I was kind of forced into it. I had to understand and learn how AWS worked. And then I realized that was a huge selling point going forward because not a lot of, um, you know, there's, it's usually separated, right? You have your DevOps people who understand AWS, AWS very well. And then you have your engineers and developers who just build on the things that the DevOps people put together. And I think at my first company, I was, I mean, really lucky to be at a company that was kind of joining it like most are doing now. 
um, to where I had this really broad understanding of distributed computing and AWS specifically uh, going forward. And while overwhelming, and I still haven't, you know, understood everything, uh, it definitely has helped in building uh, good software. Yeah, and so you know, you you mentioned DevOps, right? And the, this classic, um, uh, I guess, this classic ops versus dev mentality. And now we're kind of in the DevOps thing. Uh, I gave a talk recently uh, about this contention where you know the serverless spectrum of less ops or more ops means less developer responsibility, whereas less ops now means more response, uh, more developer responsibility, right? And so, sort of as you go through that continuum, it's like, hey, the ops people have to do less, but guess what? Now the developer's more responsible for that configuration and so forth. So I'm just curious, and maybe, I don't know, Doug, if you wanna, if you wanna answer this, um, what are your thoughts about that responsibility shift to the developer um, and, and where, and, and is serverless is serverless uh, I mean there's a huge benefit to serverless I mean I, I, I articulating all of them is probably hard right now but there's so many benefits to serverless but that does put a lot of a uh, lot of responsibility now on on the developer it, it sure does and I mean I think it cuts both ways it's it's a benefit and a, you know it's a blessing and a curse because you you put more more responsibility on the developer which means the developer starts making you know code changes or decisions you know i think we've all ex experienced or at least heard of the notion of the attitude of just throwing something over the wall and then it's someone else's problem to run it or you know you write whatever query you want and it's up to the dba to figure out how to make it run performantly or to come back and yell at you once it takes down production like anything that can help alleviate that is in my opinion a good thing but it also means that it, it it, it does put more cognitive load on you. Um, you know, as someone with, with ADHD, like interruptions are just brutal for me. So, you know, seeing notifications, alerts, like all those kind of things do weigh heavily. So it, it could be, you know, overwhelming at times, or it can be, you know, something that's, that's not necessarily just a purely, you know, it's net positive, but it's not all, you know, just obviously better, you know? Um, but, when you look at it with a serverless lens, at least there, I'm going to reiterate or repeat myself here, it's less for you to worry about. So if I was, you know, DevOps on something where it was completely unmanaged, I think that would be just so much worse. So at least you've got that, uh, you know, that sort of new attitude or that, that new um, paradigm of there's a lot less for you to worry about. So I like it because it it forces me to think about performance. It forces me to think about cost effectiveness. It, it really does try to, it, it makes, and, and it's faster, right? The, the connection between the changes you're making and a pull request and the effect it's going to have on the system um, just feels like it's a much shorter loop for feedback. So I, I really, I do think it's a net positive, um, but I, I think it's also unfair to just put it in a light that, that acts, that, that, that ignores the fact that it does create additional cognitive load on developers. I think it's, it's a lot like that. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to say that I think it's a lot like testing. You know, like when I, whenever you do so, integration testing or unit testing, uh, it's your responsibility as a developer to do that, not some tester, right? Uh, but with DevOps, it's also your, now your responsibility to make sure that like all of these operations should be like you should set it up easily. You should uh, be responsible to maintaining it and not just leave it for uh, someone else. So I do agree with Doug, it's about net positive, I think, but uh, you don't need to worry about as much as you used to. So I think it's good. Yeah. And, and I think that there's, you know, there's a, a right and a wrong way to go about it, right? If an organization yeah. thinks that DevOps is a pixie dust you, you sprinkle and then magically you get more with the same input, no, it, right? 
but it's just like testing, you're right, just like accessibility, all of those yeah. things, are, they're things that you have to have a, a, a perspective of, right, in totality. But the organization also has to understand that you're asking people to do more and, and adjust their expectations accordingly. Yeah, so it sounds like, I mean, both of you are addressing like a friction or a balance, and then it is trying to figure out how to balance those things. And I'm I'm wondering, because we have kind of three different folks here that are in different stages of the career or like came into even cloud or serverless at different times. If you see benefits in, let's say, air quotes, the struggle, right? Having struggled before with, let's say, making a shift in mindset or a shift in dev and ops or whether or not it's a shift of going from, you know, containerized applications to serverless, whatever that is, if that struggle actually ends up being something that you're like, I'm actually really glad that was really hard because now I think of this in a different way. I see Eslin thinking, he's like, was the struggle yeah, ever worth it? <laughs> no, actually, I do agree. You know, like when I think about it, it was a struggle like, like to deploy and whatnot. Like one of the things that I loved about the framework is this live URL that gets created at the end whenever you deploy. And thinking that it's scalable, like it's production ready. You know, before like you had to set up your stages to be like exactly like the same exact environment and whatnot. Like the framework, it, it didn't have to do with all this. It didn't have, it not, with the framework, you don't need to worry about servers, of course. I, I felt that that it's always ready for production from day one, and it was a struggle. I think like I always before I used to always think like I've developed an application now. How do I take it to broad and make sure it scales? I don't need to worry as much right now, you know. So yeah, no, no, I, I was thinking yeah, thinking about the struggle. <laughs> Yeah, from my perspective, like the the, the struggle is like a, a different form of, I guess, Cunningham's law or something, right? Where you, the surest way to get an answer is to post a wrong one and then someone corrects you. With with developers, like the surest way to improve things is to make them feel pain, right? And then they respond, right? Whereas, I mean, there's no shortage of detractors. I can still find people today who are like, the cloud is a fad, right? People still say that, you know, to this day. So it's not, you know, the, the struggle is, is is many fold. And, and I think the reality is, is that these pain points are just another way that, that you inspire people to improve the situation. If things were comfortable, I think we'd be at risk of not innovating enough. And I'm curious, Ben, your perspective, because um, I think this is just the way for you now, right? So there, you haven't, you you didn't experience. If anything, you you experienced it backwards. You're like, oh, this is you know this complex cloud serverless thing that yeah we got to learn, and then you go back and be like, oh, this old way is wow, yeah. that's kind of crazy. Benjamin Button yeah. over here going backwards. <laughs> I know it's it's interesting. Yeah, it happened to me with like front end technology too. Like I started with. I think I'd start with React Native to iOS, <laughs> then to web development. Yeah, I went backwards. <laughs> it was very strange. Uh, I had a weird start to my career. But yeah, I was going to say it's 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 definitely um, the, the learning curves that were introduced, I think, made me appreciate, you know, what cloud is now. And But someone 10 years ago would be laughing at me like, oh, you haven't had to worry about a you know, an SS, uh, SSL token on your server before. And, and, and you know, in there, those things still exist. But um, I guess, like, my point is the, the wasn't there a tweet or something like the next AWS will be built on AWS. So I so, so people, <laughs> so people five years or kids graduating from college five to seven years from now will be using something, hopefully cloud, but something very much like cloud, and they'll have no idea what goes behind it. Then they'll just be further and further learning, you know, they'll get frustrated with something in there, and then something else better will come out. And it's just going to be kind of like, um, well, just the natural advancement, I think. Um, 
I don't know if that was a great answer. I was kind of scrambling there. <laughs> that was great. Um, and you know, the, and the, again, not to um, uh, not to to make fun of you because you don't understand how it used to be. But we did used to have to walk uphill both ways in the snow mm-hmm. with servers on our backs to the uh, co-location facility to <laughs> uh, to run uh, applications in the past. Um, I've had I, I posted it on Twitter, so I'm reusing this joke. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast, and if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address. And those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. That's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues while also giving you an end-to-end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing toolchain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in Jira straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Sign up for free at Lumigo.io. So I, I, I do want to go to something though that that um, Eslam keeps alluding to, and and um, uh, and this is the idea of you know functions was the I think the original sort of intent of uh, what was happening with the serverless framework, and that was to say that functions, the execution itself, the actual execution environment, sort of was the the target, um, and then fr- the serverless framework did this sort of brilliant thing, which I'm pretty sure was sort of invented by them, or at least uh, codified by them, and everyone else has adopted. Is this idea of the the event sourcing or the event model where you know you have these event mappings that that go to these individual services or sorry that go to the lambda functions and execute these environments? So for the most part, that's what the framework has focused on was this idea of you create some sort of mapping, right? And sometimes that mapping might generate resources like an API gateway or an SQS queue or something like that that goes to the function. But if you want to build DynamoDB, you want EventBridge, you want some of these other services. You still have to write those as cloud formation. And those to me are the primitives. Those are the things where it's like, now I need to start understanding not only what I want to do from an execution standpoint, but I have to understand what other primitives or what other resources I need to create. What are the limits of those um uh, those the limits of those resources. What are the nuances of those resources? How do they connect together? What are the permission models? Which is again, I think takes a PhD in many cases for you to figure out how to do the permissions correctly. Um, and so I'm curious, and maybe just ask this as a more general question. Whoever wants to jump in, um, but this idea of abstractions and you know the function aspect of of what the framework did was a bit of an abstraction to try to abstract away the event mapping. Um, but then a lot of these other things like interacting with Dynamo and so forth are all things that you have to express, uh, explicitly call out. So I'm wondering if from from any of your standpoints, what's that right level of abstraction? And is that something that you believe, uh, I know we've tried to get rid of that in a way in the cloud, but is that something you believe that that all of those primitives become too burdensome or maybe they're too much of a, a distraction and we need a better abstraction on top of that? I'll jump in first, because um, this is something that's sort of near and dear to me. I, I mean. First of all, all abstractions fail at some point, right? And so I don't, I don't know that I believe that there's a, a singular 
abstraction that, that can work for everybody. But my, my sort of like vector on it is like the ideal abstraction to me is a programming language. Right. I, I don't really want to think about anything else. Anything after anything after a, a program that just looks like a computer that has, you know, thousands of cores uh, to me is an opportunity to try to find a better abstraction for that that runtime environment. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's sort of like the holy grail to me is, you know, why, why, why do we have to think about multiple computers? Why do we even have to think about queues or message passing or anything like that? Um, you know, that all of those things just to me should be codes. emergent properties. Yeah, just write code yeah. is, is really yeah. what I want. And I think there's a lot of stuff that can be gleaned from, uh, you know, I, I love I love Erlang as a source of inspiration for things. Uh, and there's lots of other interesting projects, databases, lots of forgotten technology to be rediscovered, not necessarily to like, reuse it but even just inspirationally right but mm -hmm. but in some cases yeah just just use the thing that's been built and run for a long time but uh yeah to me it's it's about looking at what's been done not throwing away the past and and moving keep keeping the the end goal in mind which is just write code yeah, and it's it's funny that you mentioned that because we were just talking to the um uh the step functions team at aws in our last conversation and and we we're talking just about you know this idea of of uh, microservices and uh, high co you know high cohesion or uh, or you know uh, tight coupling and loose coupling and all these concepts around microservices and how all of this stuff is coming back up again because the technology is so accessible through step functions and event bridge and those sort of things um, and and I, I think the quote was you know everything that was old is new again um, because that's what we're starting to see is a lot of these old patterns that were developed in the 60s and the 70s um, <laughs> that are coming back to life now um, and if some of these books are out of print you can't even get them anymore because, but the concepts are all there um so I, I think that's i think that's really interesting is this idea is to say that there are patterns that we've used in the past um that worked really really well and we can apply those patterns to a distributed you know infrastructure um but understanding where that step is, where is that abstraction that says i can go from this pattern and apply it to an infrastructure uh is really hard yeah I can actually give an example of that because uh, I was going to say the same thing uh, that Doc said that like an abstraction is perfect, you know, because one, what we had with components, we had the uh, website component, I think it was, and uh, like because we didn't want the, this component to be just focused on uh, our website, and we wanted users to have the ability to also set up like CloudFront because it's based on CloudFront for S3. I'm not going to get to the details, but uh, we wanted to be flexible. We wanted we wanted to cover all the cases. And what we ended up doing, we created uh, a component for S3, a component for CloudFront, and uh, I think a component for IAM. Uh, so these were the primitives, I think, what you referred to, Jeremy. And then on top of that, we would use these components and create the upside component. Upside component itself is like a very thin layer. And it worked for a while, but then like all of these dependencies uh, made it very hard to like update these uh, components without breaking changes, and we had to uh, like think about the versioning and whatnot. So this is when we realized, okay, we need to create like a completely like, separate abstraction that is the website that doesn't depend on these primitives. And when we did that, we suffered uh, from uh, the flexibility that we had, but we made it simpler. So it's really hard to make it to, <laughs> to have this balance. So it's really, it's really hard to answer this question, you know. But we strive to it. And like based on feedback, I think we just keep adding um, like as much config or not config like features uh, to like satisfy all parties. But uh, I'm sure there will always be edge cases, you know, for those. Right. Yeah, probably a different abstraction. <laughs> it's hard. 
Uh, many, many years ago, I stumbled across a blog post and it was, you know, what happens when I enter a URL in my in my address bar, right? And I thought to myself, okay, this is a question that I might ask someone when I'm interviewing them. It's going to feel really self-assuring to just go through and read a bunch of stuff I already know, right? So I'm like, oh, it's going to be about HTTP and I know everything there is, you know, I think I know everything about HTTP. But it was like, it went from, I hit the, you know, the letter H and it talked about the interrupt controller and the keyboard and the LCD rendering thing. And it was just, mm-hmm. a, it, it just totally, you know, knocked me off my high horse, uh, right? And, and <laughs> I the, know <laughs> right, and I was like, I know nothing about how, how any of this works, right? And, and, and I, I love those experiences because they're humbling and they teach you a lot. Uh, and it also really highlights to me that, like, you know, in, in your abstraction, uh, detail is actually somebody else's abstraction, right? And and it, it just mm. it's you know, turtles all the way down. It's abstractions all the way down. You can just keep going until you get to the silicon that we've tricked into thinking, right? Yeah, I want to take it's that. Well, first, Aslam, I just want to say. Um, you said it's hard and that's how you ended your answer. And I was just like, you know what, actually that's just what needs to be put on the shirt. Like it's hard. Like it is, that's <laughs> simply put, it's all pretty hard and, or just complex. Um, but when you're talking about these things, right, where, where you realize it's like abstractions on abstractions or the, it like, to me, that's even this idea of what, let's say serverless framework or serverless cloud is trying to do um, in terms of saying like, we want to create a better developer experience overall when you're trying to use something like serverless. And there's something to that where, um, what would you say? One person's abstraction and another person's detail. I think when we talk about developer experience, so often we're like, oh, that just, that's a bad developer experience or this is a good one. But what that doesn't do is identify that each developer is actually like a unique functioning human being that has their own habits and their own, way, own ways of doing things and their own ways that their brain works that they prefer to work. And so I'm curious that when you're developing something like serverless cloud, all being three unique individuals as different developers, did you ever come to a head where you were like, that's not how we should make this experience because we should actually do it this way and that would make it better. And were there any moments where you almost had that like moment where you said, oh, this actually, this either all funnels together and we know what that experience should be and it would make it better for everyone or we're running into this like, um, this fork where I think the experience would be better this way and you think it would be better this way. And then how do you end up kind of bringing those things together to create one individual improved experience or product? One individual, yeah, that's, that's the hard part. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I think developer experience really depends on your target audience. And you cannot just have a good developer experience overall. It has to be like the developer experience for like customer X or developer X who has like this requirement. So that's what they care about. Uh, so um, for like, if we go to the example of components, I think it's a very good example because it sits in the middle, you know, it's not very complicated, but it's not very simple like cloud. Uh, we had two personas. There are people who are new to AWS. These like these will be one thing that are zero config. You know, they don't want to, they don't know anything about AWS. They don't want to learn. They want to learn, but they don't have the time to learn. <laughs> uh, so they, they just want something that will, just work, you know, just a single command, whatnot. Uh, so the developer experience for those just as like a single command, zero config, just get your website out there, just provide your code. And you don't have a lot of edge cases, you know, they just want a simple website. But then you have the other persona, like people who are experienced with AWS. And these people, they, uh, they want flexibility. They want as much configuration as they could. They have requirements, you know, like they know how, how it works. And like, even if you try to make it easy for them, they will ask about a missing feature. <laughs> so for them, I think the best developer experience to give them all the uh, configurations that they need. And uh, and 
like I would even like go as far as say you don't even need to abstract it because it could distract them because they're used to uh, certain uh, documentation, you know, they're used to AWS CloudFormation and whatnot, but uh, they, they might, not, might not like if you like, change the property name, for example, <laughs> you know? So again, like it depends on your target audience. And uh, if you try to like, make a tool for both, like it's hard to like, have a balance. And, you know, this is, this well, like well, what, what makes it hard, you know, like is that you need to, like find this this interbeats, you know, like the, the the magic line, you know, between uh, like not too simple, not too flexible, and just in the middle uh, to like to help them both. But uh, but yeah, if they're too far ahead, we're gonna need to like two different products or two different tools. But uh, if they collide, you could just focus on the uh, uh, what they both need. So I'd love to get Doug's perspective on this, but before I get there, I want to talk to you, Ben. Um, so as someone who came in, again, this is, honestly, I wish this was sort of maybe my experience too, is you come into a world where you've got VS code, you've got auto-completion um, in your IDE, you've got plugins that allow you to do all these kind of crazy things. When I first started writing HTML and CSS and, and Perl scripts um, way back in the day, I was just using a text editor because that's what there was, right? And 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 the developer experience have gotten better. Some of them have gotten convoluted. I, I don't want to you know dismiss that. But I'm just curious from your perspective as someone who comes in with a whole bunch of tools and some really good developer experience. I think GitHub has a great developer experience. Again, VS Code is great. There's a whole bunch of other tools that are out there. Um, I mean, what is the expectation maybe for, for people new to the, to the industry or relatively new to the industry? What's the expectation of a developer experience, of the developer experience? Uh, definitely the, I, I've, I've noticed like, I mean, I used to do this too when I was learning how to code, uh, was relying on the like IDE to pre-fill what you can call, right? So like, you know, you would put a dot for, you know, on some class, and then you'd see all these options like, oh, I want this one. And uh, obviously, as you as you grow and get more knowledge, you rely way less on that. But just starting to learn how to code with that kind of tooling uh, and inspection tools uh, kind of I think I think that becomes the standard. Right. And then, you know, someone perhaps switching from like a Java environment where they learned to more JavaScripty, more like or like even Python, where there's like more interpreted, less less structure to it, uh, for better or for worse. Uh, it it does become a little more daunting, I think, even with all the tools you can get because you are used to this kind of like, oh, I have everything right here. I can put a breakpoint because that's how everyone learns in college is oh, I'll put a breakpoint and step through this function. And then you kind of learn the hard way that if you want to do breakpoints in JavaScript, you have to a little, you have to put some more effort in. Um, I would say it hasn't really changed that much, though. I mean, obviously, no one's, everyone's using VS Code, everyone's using plugins, and everyone's using whatever they can get. Really, uh, I, I wouldn't really say there's one specific like feature that like newer developers are expecting um, by default. Uh, or, or I don't really, or I'm naive to it, you know, or I've just, you know, I've, I've had it this whole time that I didn't know it was something that was that crucial that everyone just uses today. 
Well, maybe I can add some perspective, and Doug, you can maybe uh, uh, comment on this as well. Remember when browsers didn't have an inspect panel, and you just, it was view source. That was basically the the extent of your debugging, um, as well as like, even, even when you were writing code and you were testing that code, um, often single-threaded applications, a lot of log statements, a lot of exit statements, you know, trying to step through the code, um, you know, trying to figure out where things break. Um, I'm just, as, as I'm increased. Um, so I'm just curious, like, I mean, that, that, um, uh, this evolution of developer experiences and look, not everybody nails them. I mean, we, I can name a couple that are pretty bad. I won't because I don't want to call anybody out, but I mean, your perspective on developer experiences, I mean, how, how much does that, how much is that, or how important is that? in order to get people to learn what you're trying to do, get them to be more productive, um, get them to get something to production faster. I mean, what, what's what's the, what what's your, how much weight would you put behind developer experience? Well, I mean, hey, I would think I remember when browsers didn't have buttons. So this, never mind uh, inspect element, right? So uh, I, we are in the era of developer experience, right? There's so many options to choose from. If you're not prioritizing that, you're going to easily be passed by because th- that's that's it. That's the name of the game right now is, is DX. Um, I just wanted to say that in the in the topic of serverless cloud and abstractions, um, I think having the, the diverse set of experiences on the team that we've we've talked about here um, helps keep in mind that there's not probably one right way to do things. Um, and mm. I, I th- I'm actually kind of impressed that we haven't butted heads uh, so much. Rather, I think we've we've talked about, you know, what, what are the layers we're trying to offer, right? We've got like a simple API helper to get people up and running, but we've also got to bring your own framework because we know people are going to maybe want to not write things exactly that way. So I think we're actually striking a pretty good balance in terms of offering an opinion, but not locking or boxing you into that opinion as well. So it's batteries included, but you can take them out and replace. Uh, <laughs> that's a terrible metaphor, but that's that's the thing we're going for, right? Is, is trying to uh, give people a great place to start, but not limit them on how far they can take it. And in that spirit, like like developer experience, as I said, is, is everything. I think that's that's their, our, our main motivator. Every discussion we have is about how it's affecting developer experience or how someone might see it. And and when, and when there are times where we are looking at it from different perspectives, because we are at different stages in our careers or our brains just work differently and we just like have different comfort levels with how we look at things, we tend to try then to split it up into a, well, what's the nice to have that we're offering? And then what are some of the lower level uh, things that we might be able to offer to give people the ability to, to sort of diverge somewhat from what we're offering? So Sean Wang, who is known as Swix, uh, if you follow him on Twitter, he wrote an article about self-provisioning runtimes. And Doug, you even talked about this at the very beginning of uh, this conversation. I'm wondering um, how you see that, how you think about it. Um, You could say cloud as a computer, if you will. Yeah, I mean, that is, I think, exactly how I think of it. The cloud is the computer, and we're just talking about the next generation of complex instruction sets where running an entire sort of program is just a thing that you can ask it to do, and it's got thousands of cores and you know many many terabytes of memory or whatever you want to you know imagine to your to your heart's content. Um, when I think of us, like I really like the term self provisioning runtime, and I've actually been like mulling over a follow up. Right uh, article where I'm trying to talk about a self-replicating runtime because I think as we move from cloud into fog, there's going to be uh, this era where you write code and you don't even know where it's going to run and it might move and get rehosted and things like that. Right, so you're not just deploying to one fixed location, um, and that's I think why also abstractions are so important because the runtime really needs to be the thing that decides what's best. And I, I believe in this with all of my heart. It's like the pinnacle of what I think my career has led to. 
Um, it's just that as a developer, every time I make a decision, I'm, I'm probably wrong. You know, I, I might be right at the time, but then the, the environment changes, the, the, the real world production data changes, you know, and, and the last thing I want to do is spend, uh, you know, an entire day hand optimizing database indices only to find out that that's not the access pattern that actually came up. And while you can absolutely try to gather data and have OI and all the things that you want, you know, then your users change their mind or something happens, you know, outside of your control and you can keep chasing that feedback loop or trying to make it possible. Or you can just step back and say, you know what, what if the runtime just figured out what was best for my application? And that's uh, really where, not to get too lofty, but that's where I see the future of, of cloud and fog computing is just, it's about all the decisions that you might have to make, not needing to make them because making them is, is an expensive exercise and, you know, is, a, is, a, is fixed at a point in time. And it, the more you can push into that runtime where it decides and, and in the concept of self-provisioning, like I think it will eventually get to the point where, um, you know, the database itself is self-provisioning. And I'm, I don't just mean spinning up another node. I mean, the database decides when to materialize data, when something should be, you know, uh, replicated or not. Like, like I really think, and, and, and if I'm not, mistaken. I think that even Oracle Cloud has their autonomous database that I think everyone just ignores Oracle because of, of the name. But I, I think they've actually got some neat stuff there. And there are other legacy database systems that had these types of features too. So again, everything old is new. The self-provisioning runtime to me is is just a very succinct way of explaining, um, you know, putting more things into machine control. And and that's to me, that's the future. It's more, more automation, more self-automation, more... Um, uh, program synthesis. Like I just, I, I really think that that's the future we're looking at because there's just too much code. There's too much code to write. There's too much stuff to keep in your head and it's just getting worse, but I, I think it's going to get better as, as more of these um, aspects of self-provisioning runtimes come into play. It almost sounds like, you know, when you got to clean your house, or your closet, it's going to get dirtier before it gets cleaner. Like it got, it has to get messier. Stuff has to come out and go. And then you look around and you're like, I thought I was cleaning, but it's actually just messier. But that is, it's like getting worse to get better, right? You got to move stuff around to like rearrange and figure out where it's going to go. And then afterwards you're like, ah, this is where we were headed to. I wish I could say that about my kids cleaning their room, but somehow they, after they clean their room, they're worse off than they were before. <laughs> um, anyways, we're running out of time, uh, and so we do need to wrap up. But I, I while we have Doug here, um, Doug, you wrote a uh, an NPM package called uh, serverless-HTTP, which is hugely popular, has a ton of usage. People aren't familiar with it. Essentially, allows you to use Express or any of the sort of the REST REC, um, uh, you know, format uh, HTTP um, frameworks, uh, and bring that into a Lambda function. I just would love to get your perspective. Like, what was it that you were like? I actually have. I absolutely have to write this. And then also, sort of, you know, what's the experience been with having such a popular uh, open source package? Yeah. So. You know, my honestly, like I like I alluded to, we we started using serverless um, at at my other employer D two L pretty early in the game, and so my motivation was honestly more, you know, not sure if Lambda's gonna, you know, ha- cold start times weren't as good as they were. You know, it was just it was much more um, things were a little bit rockier. So the the motivation was to be able to write something and if we had to quickly throw it into a container instead, right? So it was meant to give you that 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 flexibility to A, stick with with what you already knew, right? There are a lot of middleware already out there. A lot of people already knew you know, how they wanted to structure applications, uh, but also the escape hatch to be like, okay, Lambda isn't you know, handling our use cases very well. Let's throw it in Docker and, and run it on, on EC2 or ECS at the time. And what about the success of it? I think it has like 280,000 downloads a week or something crazy like that. I don't know, maybe not that high. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, that's... 
humbling and amazing and i never thought that would be the case it was something i wrote in an afternoon it was just like you know you, you get that idea the muse hits you and you're just like oh what if it worked this way and honestly it's just it, it's it's just the internal node rec res objects that i wrote a, like a, a mocking layer around to trick it into thinking that it had a real socket connection it you know the, those moments that when they happen the creativity hits you and you do them but uh, i i wish i could make it happen on demand but it, it doesn't work that way <laughs> It's much, well, uh, I'm much glad. yeah. It's much smaller than AWS's version of it, uh, because when we started with the component, the uh, I think it was the Express component, we used AWS's uh, package. I don't know what it was called, and it was. I think like, it was called Service Express, right? I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, it was like huge. I don't know what they were doing there, uh, over there, but uh, it was out of date with the new Lambda payload, and it had a lot of issues. And then we migrated to serverless HTTP, and it just worked. <laughs> and then I looked at the code; it's, <laughs> it's uh, like it's uh, a lot simpler. As so, uh, like, you did a great job, yeah. though. <laughs> like, seriously. No, it's it, it's amazing, and, yeah. and I'm so glad that that Doug is is part of the team, and and that uh, we actually use it as part of cloud um, because it uh, yeah. it does allow us to do that, bring your own framework, and and uh, and be able to process a lot of that stuff. All right, unfortunately, we're out of time. I mean, I will continue to talk to all of you about all these amazing topics because I'm lucky enough to work with you every day. Um, the rest of you, though, if you want to reach out to these fine uh, these fine serverless engineers um, and learn more about them, um, Twitter probably the best way. As and what's your Twitter handle? Fnawi. If you can pronounce my name, <laughs> but I will put yeah. it in the show notes, so um, we'll we'll get it there. Yeah. And uh, Ben. So I quickly made mine because I realized everyone here has a Twitter. So it's uh, it's it's Debbie Ben <laughs> with two V's. Nice. <laughs> All right, and. And then Doug, of course, because he was smart, has Doug Mosscrop, his full name without the hyphen, unfortunately, like mine does. Um, uh, hey, thank you all for being here. This this was was awesome. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Oh, thanks, guys. And don't forget, uh, serverless.com slash cloud, and obviously check out Serverless Cloud. Plus one. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Doug Mosscrop, Eslam Hefnawi, and Ben Miner for being our guests this week, and to our sponsor, Lumigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 117. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter, at Becca Odelay, and me, at Jeremy underscore Daily. And if you want to keep up to date with everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.